If you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. Uh, We'll be reading in just a moment verses 6 through 19. Again, the Gospel of John uh, chapter 17, and we'll begin shortly in verse 6. It came to me uh, this morning that I have a, a long history with this uh, passage of Scripture, and by that I I mean in terms of uh, my public ministry, my my call to the pastorate, uh, one of the uh, first passages that I spoke outside of uh, my own church uh, was this particular passage here, and there's probably four or five others I would go to. But uh, I distinctly remember a friend asking me to to come to his uh, Methodist men's group and to speak to them. Uh, And I chose uh, this text and was very much informed as to what was going on in this text by the the work of the the late J.I. Packer, uh, Knowing God, and another book that uh, is not very well known uh, by a young man by the name of Dan DeHaan. Uh, and it was the, uh, the book was uh, The God You Can Know. And so uh, I've always been drawn to the passage. I'm, I'm approaching it a little differently uh, than I have in uh, previous opportunities to, to speak uh, from this passage. Uh, but I, I think it's a, a really outstanding uh, passage to go to, uh, to mine uh, for our emphasis today, uh, that being uh, this uh, This great anthem, uh, this great affirmation of sola scriptura, or again, scripture alone. So, uh, we come to what is the the fourth of the five sermons in this uh, year's Five Solas series. I think I can say with certainty, sola scriptura is my favorite of the five solas uh, to preach. This particular preference uh, prompted me to reflect upon one of my early discussions with the search committee from Centercrest Baptist Church, of which at least three of them are here uh, today. And I think if you would ask them, they would remember and confirm the nature of this particular discussion. I don't remember which came first, whether I made the comment that I wanted to cultivate a, and, and lead a word-centered church, or if they stated that they had surveyed the church, and that survey showed that the number one desire of the church was that they would find a pastor who would preach the Bible. Am I remembering something along those lines accurately? I thought I was. Okay. And so... My response to their statement was something to the effect, the only thing I can offer the church is that I would faithfully week in and week out preach the Word. I couldn't and I didn't promise that it would always be interesting, entertaining, or enjoyable. However, my promise was that I would be faithful to the text of Scripture. And if there is one criteria by which you can judge the success of a pastorate is, did you do what you said you would do? 
then at least as far as that stated purpose goes, then I have had and we have had together a successful 20 years. Why would I make such a commitment? Why would I stick by it? Why, when people would dispute and undermine, and somebody sent me an email just in the last 10 days to remind me of a particular incident or episode in which one particular individual was seeking to undermine me and unseat me. So why would I, why would I go to the trouble when people would leave the church because they disagreed with what I taught? Why would I double down and continue to preach and teach the same things that were causing such turmoil? Was it that I was and still am insane? That is, I was doing the same thing expecting a different result, which I'm told is at least one definition of insanity. Why not preach something more palatable? Why not why not preach something more popular, something that put and kept fannies in the pews and kept pockets and purses open for giving to the church? The reason didn't really grow out of my understanding of this particular Reformation affirmation, at least not by its name, but certainly was present in my heart and mind in principle. My practice was driven by my conviction that remains until this day and will remain by God's grace my commitment until the day I see Jesus. That mandate to both the pastor in the pulpit and the parishioner in the pew is that the Word of God must be preached without prejudice, without apology, and with the unshakable conviction that it is God's Word given for our salvation and our sanctification. It is the singular testimony that both diagnoses man's unresolvable problem and yet offers that problem's irrefutable solution. It is Scripture and Scripture alone that reveals the person and work of the only begotten Son of God, the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and returning Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, let us today consider and renew our conviction and our commitment to the great anthem and resolution voiced by those reformers and affirmed by Scripture itself. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Read with me from John 17 and verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, 
which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, these things I speak in the world, that you may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word, for its testimony to reality, the reality that you accomplished our redemption on the cross 2,000 years ago. And that you have been raised from the dead and that you have now ascended to intercede for us and to rule and to reign until the day of your appointed and sure return. May we anticipate, may we look forward to the day in which we see you as you are because we shall be like you. I pray that indeed your spirit would be at work today. I have every belief, every conviction, and every confidence that the word that you have inspired as it is proclaimed will not return void. We ask you to fulfill that promise in and among each of us for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our own good. So, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What are the implications of an affirmation, of a confession, a slogan even, Scripture alone or sola scriptura? We have the sure, that is the infallible, the inerrant, inspired, unchanging, and sufficient Word of God. It is perfect to accomplish what God has intended to accomplish from all of eternity past. And so, if you think about it for a moment, God has given, and for, as, as a practical thing for all of us gathered here today, He has given to us, He has placed uh, within our power, given, you know, for our use, placed at our disposal, this written Word of God. It is unique in its origin and unique in its purpose and unique in its subject. And it's the one thing that He has given to me and given to you by which we may exercise and experience and apply this awesome power of God, that we may bring it to bear upon us and among us. And so it seems to me to be of great folly that we would neglect 
this thing that God has entrusted to us because we have the certain promise voiced from Isaiah the prophet that this word shall not return void, that it will accomplish the purpose for which I have sent that word. And so I am content, and here's the big question, is I am faithful in the explanation, the unpacking of his word, then I'm, I am confident. Now, again, the question is, am I being faithful? But that is my goal, that is, that is my purpose, that I would be faithful to the intent of Scripture, and then I have every confidence, what? That God will with certainty, we can be sure, He will accomplish His great purpose. This Word is the singular instrument entrusted to the church whereby we may participate in the application of salvation through the proclamation, through the faithful proclamation of this word. And when I say participate now, I want to say it advisedly. I want to say it very uh, cautiously and, 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 and uh, with, with just a very, very narrow meaning that I want to preserve and I, uh, that, that I'm telling you that salvation is ultimately a monergistic accomplishment, okay? Uh, I'm not saying it's synergistic and we all get to work together and we get to do a little of that and do a little of this and we all get to work together and get people saved. God and God alone works to bring salvation. He is the one, He's the single agent at work in raising a heart and opening a mind and giving life to a dead heart. But He gives to us the means or the instrument through which He purposes he tends to work, again, namely, the Word of God. It is the only thing that I have or the only thing that I can do whereby I can bring to bear the power of God for life and salvation to the dead heart of the unbeliever. It is the only sure word by which I may give hope, assurance, comfort, and encouragement to the believer. And, and in a sense, you really do it all at the same time. You're always mindful that there's always a mixed bag sitting in front of you, that there are those that God, through the power of word and spirit, has raised from the dead, given them new life, he's converted them, they are faithful, and they are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And there are those that are dead in trespasses and sin. And the only thing, absolutely, I have nothing else, you have nothing else, by which God would work other than the imperishable seed of the new birth. And that same imperishable seed that brings life out of death even continues throughout the days of our sojourn on this planet. It continues to give hope and encouragement to the believer. And so God has entrusted that to us. Therefore, all opinions, all agendas, all programs, all doctrine, all catechisms, confessions, and creeds, inclusive of every affirmation and every denial, must be subjected to the Word of God. None of those things stand in judgment of the Word of God. None of those things stand in authority over the Word of God. They only may aid us to see with clarity, to give us a lens by which we may see, may come to understand the meaning of this word. And so we come... 
to this particular portion of John's gospel, a section that some refer to as the high priestly prayer of the Lord or the, the real Lord's prayer. Jesus, knowing that the time of his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion was near, he spends his final hours instructing his disciples and interceding before them. And it is interesting to note how word-centered Jesus was on this last evening and even in the days leading up to this final evening with these disciples. Now, John does not develop for us the details of the inaugural Lord's Supper. He does give us the unique account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Now, while both the supper and the foot washing were and still are dramatic symbols, symbols given and designed to illuminate truth, those symbols must be defined by the Word of God. The participants can't fully appreciate their meaning apart from their verbal explanations. So even the central dramas, and by that I mean the two ordinances that God has given the church, namely baptism as initial and once for all, and Lord's Supper to be uh, repeated regularly, baptism and Lord's Supper must be informed, framed, and defined by the Word. If, 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 If they're not informed by this word, and I don't mean any disrespect or any kind of, you know, um, joking or sour or any, without the word to tell us what they mean, they're crackers and juice. They're a snack. But it's the word that informs us, this is my body and this is my blood, which reminds us of the accomplishment on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, even before Jesus gathered on this evening with those disciples, he made a a final public statement regarding the centrality of the Word of God. If you want to turn back to chapter 12 for just a moment, and this is after the triumphal entry. It's noteworthy. It's after the the resuscitation of Lazarus and uh, that particular miracle had the effect of what? We've got to kill this guy because he's trouble. Yeah, that, 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 and, and it really does seem to me, and it, I, I really haven't studied it absolutely, but for the most part, while miracles may convince at some level the believer, I think they rarely convert the unbeliever. It still takes the Word, because God has always ordained that the Word would be that which the Spirit uses to bring the new birth. Again, because it's what? That imperishable seed. And so this is after that great miracle, Jesus is speaking uh, of His purpose, what He had actually uh, come to do, and what He wants to do. And we see this through these four or five chapters in John. He wants us to see Uh, The unity that he has, that he's always enjoyed, he continues to enjoy, this unity uh, with the Father, and that the the Father's words are the words that he has received from the Father and has now spoken them, and John has recorded them for the disciples, for for us. And so uh, you see here, verse 49 of chapter 12, 
For I have not spoken on my authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So Jesus has received from the Father. We'll talk more about that in a minute. That's really interesting if you think about it. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. This word, Father to Son to us, is eternal life. It is the very source by which we would be converted. So what I say, therefore, and this was really important, maybe not as significant to us, but for these good Jewish people, this unity with the Father was absolutely a necessary concept that they had to get in their minds and really had to overcome uh, the idea, their, their basic monotheism, that there was a plurality in the Godhead, namely a Father, a Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one God, but there are three persons in this singular Godhead. Again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus has received and he has delivered. And we see that language utilized through the scriptures, this authoritative receiving from one in authority and then passing on authoritatively to those down the line. And so we have a received word from God that we pass on with all of its authority to all who come behind us. And if you'll remember in this prayer, yes, Jesus particularly says, hey, I'm not praying for the unbelieving world right now. That's not my purpose in this prayer. I'm praying for these that you gave me. I'm praying for these guys. And, and, and I, here's what I want to happen. That I, I have spoken this word that I received from you. And I want you to utilize it in their life. And you're going to use it to set them apart. Okay? That that, that, that word is truth. And, and, and you're going to distinguish you, them from everybody else by their attitude toward this word. And that's great and that's good. But we didn't read it. But the prayer continues now. I prayed for these guys because they're, they're important. They're foundational. But let me tell you, I'm not just praying for them. I'm praying for everyone that comes after them that shall hear the word of God, that shall take the word that I've delivered to them and they and the, the associates, the other designates that will be inspired, that will be carried along by the Spirit of God. They will write this inspired, infallible, inerrant word, and it will be delivered, and it will be received, and they will come to know you, and they will come to know me. And only in us, through this instrument, through the means, namely the Word of God, will they come to know salvation. So as we look at verse 6, I would call Jesus the Word saturated Savior, or maybe word-permeated Savior. If you want to go back to John 1, 1, that very kind of enigmatic passage, I love it. And uh, it, it, just, it just stretches me. And I, I mean, even this week, I, I kept going back. And as I've told you before, I, I love my commentaries, and I love my systematic theology, and I love reading them. And they never address the issue I want to be addressed. Uh, they're, they're always deficient. You know, they, they always leave me with something. Well, there's just something else that's hanging out there that I need 
teased out for me. And, and so I always come to that, and there's no telling how many times I have looked at this particular passage. But if you'll notice, what John wants to do, he, he wants us to, to see together, to link together, to hold together a couple of things, or, or really a number of things. Uh, by, by the linguistics of the first phrase in the beginning, where does he want our mind to go? He wants us to go back to Genesis 1, right? He, he wants us to in some way, whoa, whoa wait a minute, I've, heard, I've seen that phrase before. So he wants our mind to go back and, and begin to conceptually think about, in the beginning, God. Bereshit, Berah, Elohim. I impressed you again, I know it. All right, so I want your mind to go back there. And what I want to do, I want to, I want to make a link. I want to paint you a picture. And, and the picture has in it the, the, the Spirit, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the conception of eternity, creation, and its beginning. All of these things are, are kind of going together. And so what, what he does, he first of all tells us that the Word existed, and I believe his emphasis is, as he fleshes it out, is the Word has existed eternally. And that the Word had a distinction from what we normally think of as God, namely God the Father, because He was with God. Okay, that's, that means there's, there's at least two. They're, they're with God. And, and the phrase is prostantheon, face to face. They were intimate. They were closely associated. Okay? And then He goes on and says what? Not only was he with, but he is. The Word is God. And this Word was active in creation. He's the giver of life and light in a dead and dark world. And this Word became flesh, and he dwelled among men. And Jesus is that Word, fully resplendent and the final revelation of God. So what, what is this, this word? And again, people wax long and eloquent for, to the Greek mind, the, the word was impersonal, yet it was powerful and was the creative and organizing principle responsible for creation and reality. So the, the, the pagan mind, the Greek mind saw this and, okay, they, they kind of, they, they, they may not have known the Hebrew scriptures, but they, they got conceptually kind of what maybe John was driving for. And now, to the, to the, to the Hebrew uh, mind, the, the word was powerful and active. It was the revelation of the will and wisdom and even at some level the essential nature of God. However, it is John that uniquely ties together the power, the revelation, and the nature of God as unified clarified and magnified in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word isn't a power, it's a person. And his name is Jesus. And in him, all the fullness of deity dwell. And so what I, what I want to try to stress and get across to you again, is there's a link between the incarnate word of God and the Spirit of God, what's the link? That spoken to Mary was the Holy Spirit shall overshadow you, and you shall conceive in your womb, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
because he will save his people from their sins. And so, so we have that, and then we have the written word, which is described as that which occurred when the prophets of old were carried along by that very same spirit. Okay? Now, I do not, I do not deify the Bible. It is not the fourth member of the Trinity. If you ever have liberal friends, and everybody ought to have them some liberal friends. I mean, if you ever get bored, get you some liberals, okay? I mean, they will light up your life, okay? But one of the criticisms is always, well, you made the Bible the fourth member of the Trinity, which, by the way, is kind of a contradiction in terms, if you think about it. You can't have four in the Trinity. But anyway, that is typically one of their criticisms, okay? And so, no, 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 we're not saying it's the fourth member of the Trinity, but it is the full revelation of that Trinity. And if we would know that Trinity in their saving power, it will come through that word. Okay? If we would, if we would know this salvation, it will come through that word. And so Jesus, uh, in this testimony of the Jews, look there at verse, verses 6 through 8, back in our text, John 17. I have manifested your name. I've made it visible. I've made it plain. You have seen it on the fully orbed display in my life and in my work, the very character and the very will of God. And I have given you the word, the word that we've already explained. What is the word received uh, from the Father? Okay, And it demonstrates and defines this character and will and activity of, uh, of God. And so God had entrusted these disciples who were originally His in some sense. He's entrusted them to the Son through whom they will be saved through this ministry of the Word. And Jesus says that you've come to believe this. You've kept my Word. You're confident of the testimony that I have given to you. And so there is continuity from Father to Son given to these disciples, okay? And so Jesus said in John 14, 24, the same thing we've looked at in John 12, the same thing we see in verse, uh, chapter 17, the word that you hear is not mine, but it's the Father who sent me. Now, let's go back to, and the word was with God, prostantheon, from all eternity, Father and Son, or face-to-face, in joyful, covenantal, holy communion and fellowship. And now, here's kind of the mystery. Jesus is omniscient, and the Father is omniscient. So why is he hearing from the Father the Word? Why, why is that going? Does Jesus need to be instructed? Well, no, he doesn't need to be instructed. He's perfectly the perfect eternal God. There's nothing you can add to the knowledge of the Son of God. But for the joy of fellowship, they are together face to face, and they're rejoicing in the mutual affirmation of the reality reflected in these words. And they've been given to us in the Bible. And, and, and I, often, I often tell you, Yes, there is an informational aspect to preaching. But we've been together 20 years. 
I mean, y'all gave me a T-shirt a while back, and it tell, all the things I keep saying over and over and over again are right there on the T-shirt, okay? And, you know, it's like, well, I need something new. No, you don't. You need to celebrate with me and rejoice in me in the things that we hold together that we have known for many, many days together. But we revel in them just as the Father and the Son reveled in the testimony of each other in the great truth of the Word of God. And so we see in Father, Son, in eternity past, the principle defined in Deuteronomy 6 and what we call the Shema, that fathers, you are to know this Word and do what? Teach them diligently to your children. It is a pattern that was established in reality, I mean in eternity, between the Father and the Son. So it's a great pattern for us to practice within our home for fathers to teach their son. And so Jesus had faithfully replicated to his children, to those disciples, that which he'd experienced in eternity, this sharing of this word given to him by the Father. And they got it to some extent. We know. You know, we love to laugh at them, okay? I, I know. They could be Keystone Cops every once in a while, Google it, young people. It's three stooges, they, they, you know. Uh, dumb and dumber, you know, whatever. Uh, they really could. But go back to John 6 for just a minute. We're not listening very fast today, are we? Okay. I told you I liked this. John 6. Jesus has been teaching. He's walked on water. He's fed the 5,000. There's a group that really wants to make him king. And he has to kind of separate himself because that's not the plan. That's not what's going to happen. And I, listen, you can identify with the disciples. This is how. I know good and well there were days that the disciples went, Jesus, did you really have to say that? And I know there are days that you sit out there and you go, Tim, did you really have to say that? Right? Amen? Yes, I know. All right. So Jesus has been talking about, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That I'm the true bread that's come down from heaven. And just on and on. He, got, I mean, he just keeps at it. And we come to chapter 6, verse 60, and, and people are leaving. They're getting their fannies out of the pews. They're leaving the building. They're closing their purses, and they're closing their pocketbooks. And so some that remained said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus was aware. They were grumbling. He questions them. Do you, are you offended at this? And then he goes on, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. Paul fleshes this out, 1 Corinthians 2. Natural man does not understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned, okay? The gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, one of my head scratchers this week, and I think I'm satisfied that the Spirit there in verse, the second Spirit in verse 63, Spirit and life, is the small s spirit. Because I looked at it and looked, maybe that should be big s spirit. Now, here with clarity what I said, big letter s spirit, okay? 
We could debate that. But again, what Jesus has spoken to them is that which God uses instrumentally, what God uses as a means to bring life where there's death to those he intends to bring that life to them. Because in verse 64 it says, but there's some of you that do not believe. You've, you've had the same word sown, but some of you are rocky soil. Some of you are soil with weeds in it. And some of you will prove not to believe. And so he doubles down again, verse 65. This is why I told you. This, this, this is what I've been trying to tell you. I told you back in verse 44. That's what I said. No man. No man may come to me except the Father who sent me draws him unless God takes the initiative, unless God takes this word that he gave to me in eternity past. I've given it to you. And you, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, are going to write it down so that people for 2,000 years can share in and participate and utilize and come to have spiritual life through that means. Okay? And all God's people shouted and said, Amen. See, we see there in 66, many left. He looks at the 12. As you can imagine, Simon Peter speaks up. Do y'all want to leave? Do y'all want to go? Peter looks at him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words. Now, we don't have Jesus incarnate among us anymore in the sense of 2,000 years ago. He's not walking around. But folks, <laughs> we still have the words of eternal life. We still have them. We still have that very same sure word, the words of eternal life. And so Jesus is convinced that those who come to hear and know and believe this word, they, they will keep uh, that truth. They, they will be secure in that word. In chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John 8, I think a few of those same three people I mentioned earlier heard me preach from this passage. You're truly my disciples. What? If you continue in my word. That's how we distinguish who a true disciple is and who a false professor is. They continue in that word, and they love to keep that word, and they love to hear that word. Oh, yeah, I know everything Pastor Tim does. I know more than Pastor Tim does. But you know what? I like for him to remind me that we know it together, and we share it, and we fellowship because of the great truth of the Son of God crucified and resurrected for my salvation. And so, Jesus was the word-saturated Savior, by essence and by his immersion in the word of his Father. And he convinced his followers of that very same truth, of the virtue and value of that very same word. Second thing this morning, the Savior-centered word. Our Bible, the word is centered on the Savior. We always should read our Bible Christologically. Okay, We always should read our Bibles and understand that it is part of a tapestry woven to display the salvation in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
we read earlier. The scriptures speak of Jesus. He's talking about the Old Testament recorded in John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. That's the purpose of the Word of God, that we would know uh, the Son. And so when I say that we should be Word-centered, that doesn't mean we should be preacher-centered, that, that, we should be, that the, the preacher's just here to give you long lectures, to give you information in regards to history or admonitions in regards to your behavior. But the written Word is the foundation of the preached Word for the revealing of the incarnate Word for the sake of our eternal well-being, namely the salvation of our souls, this truth that's relevant now and will be relevant for all of eternity, it's the only thing that I can do by which I may take what God has given us, namely this Word of God, and in, in some way be instrumental in passing it along to you so that God's power will be applied to your life for your salvation and for your sanctification. And so Jesus is the point of the Word of God. He is the center of the Word of God. The story of Jesus the message of the gospel is revealed from Genesis to Revelation quickly. The law, if we think about the categories of the Old Testament, the law proves the need of the Savior. Whether it's in the early testimony of Genesis, creation, rebellion, redemption, and consummation, whether it's the earliest promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would be bruised, but he would crush the head of the Satan, whether it's the promise to Abraham that there would be one who would be the blessing to the nation, whether it's Genesis 49.10 where Jacob speaks of the lion of the triumph of Juba who, uh, from whom the scepter will never depart. The Old Testament history is filled with, and the purpose of it is to point to Jesus, okay? Excuse me, the books of the law, Genesis Genesis uh, through uh, the book of Deuteronomy. The books of history prepare us for the Savior. It tells us of the faithfulness to God to an old covenant people that were unfaithful, but God is eternally faithful. It tells us of the promise made to David. There shall be an eternal ruler that shall come from your line. And it speaks that there will always be a remnant. That all may fall away except for this remnant. The books of prophecy predict the coming of the Savior. We find the indictment for the sins of the nation. We find the warning of judgment, and we find the ultimate promise of deliverance from that judgment is in the suffering servant, the king that was to be born in Bethlehem. The books of wisdom, the Psalms, Proverbs, they speak prophetically of the Savior. They extol the virtues of the Savior, and they celebrate the victory of the Savior. It's all designed to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. The incarnate Word and the written Word of God. I can't, it does no good for me to flash a picture of Jesus up here as though we had one. You understand. We don't have one. It does no good to put pictures of the empty tomb or the cross, whatever. What God has given us is this written Word of God. And it is a weapon, sword of the Spirit. It's given to demolish the strongholds. It's the, again, the only thing that I can do. You know, some of you have heard me talk about our very famous trial lawyer, Bobby Lee Cook. You can Google it for sure. I lived across the street from 10 years. I kind of imagine sometimes he drove by in his Rolls Royce with his chauffeur. If I got you in court, I believe I'd kick your rear end. He's Matlock, if you want to know. I was told when I first came, you know, you preach like a lawyer. I almost hit the guy. 
But what he said, you argue the case. And I do. And I think I'm a very persuasive person when I want to be. But you know what? All the persuasiveness in the world lacks enough power to bring life where there's death. It is the power of God and God alone. And he has promised to, to demonstrate and apply that power through the proclamation of this sword of the Spirit, the sword that's sharper than any two-edged sword that divides and exposes and brings people to their knowledge of both their sin and a Savior. It is the sufficient Word of God. It is by the Word of Christ that Lazarus was called from the dead. It is the imperishable seed of the new birth. It is the voice that the master's sheep hear from John 10, initially heard in the new birth and heard at the sound of the trumpet and the cry of command when those who are dead in Christ will be raised and those who are alive and remain will be called to meet him in the air. And folks, I believe regeneration is just kind of a shadow of the resurrection. That spiritually dead, voice of command. Physically dead, present with Jesus, but what? His word brings life to the dead, and they're snatched to, bring, to meet him in the air. John 5, 25, listen to this. Truly, truly, the hour is coming and is now here. Now, Jesus was saying this 2,000 years ago. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. You get that? This is what's going to happen. The Word of God is going to be preached, and I'm going to raise people from the dead. Now, he goes on and says, Do not marvel at this, for the time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out to those who, uh, come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of the judgment. The voice that those who die in Christ will hear and will be raised to be incorruptible with him forever. And so we preach the Word because it's powerful. It's so powerful that one day that word will raise the dead. So the church, the Savior, and the word. Look at verse 17 of our text real quick. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Make them holy. Make them practically holy. I have set them apart by my blood. I have cleansed them with my blood. I have worked in them by my spirit. I want this process to continue. And the way it will continue is if they keep your word, they continue in your truth. To be distinguished, to be distinct from the world. And so the church is created through the proclamation of the Savior reborn men preaching a living, powerful word to dead bones so that God will make them alive. And that church created by the word is distinguished by that very same word. That word that we're admonished to let dwell in our hearts richly so that we may teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. There is an internal necessity to the proclamation of that word that we don't drift, that we don't despair, that we don't distress others by the same. And then we take that word and go externally. We take it into the world for the sake of evangelism. This, church, this word that created was created by the word, is sustained by the word, it's nourished, it's matured, it's encouraged, it's refined, and it is kept. And so that's why we say, Sola Scriptura. That's why we obey. Preach the Word.
whether it's popular or whether it's not, preach that word. It is sufficient to do that which I have ordained for it to accomplish, namely the salvation of everyone and anyone that I will save, and for the sanctification, for the ongoing growth of those whom I have saved. I've said it many times. I have staked my own well-being and the well-being of North Clay Baptist Church on the truth of Scripture alone as the sufficient witness and the unique instrument through which God works in the world and in the church. It is my desire that we experience all of the power that God has vested in this precious thing that we call His Word, our Holy Bible. So may we confess and may we celebrate and may we practice together that great thing, Scripture alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is Your Word, and You have given it to us for our good and for Your glory. I pray, I pray that we have been found faithful, that the case has been made, and that those who have heard will rejoice that we have a church that is committed to the proclamation of the Word of God. The only thing given by which the name the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved will be known and proclaimed and experienced. May we revel, even in this very difficult world, may we revel in the truth of your word. May we revel in the knowledge of our Savior until the day that we see him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.